So, thank you all for coming. Uh, yesterday, I was in Gainesville and I spoke at an academic conference, a national and international academic conference. And the topic I spoke on, which is something probably that keeps you all up at night, was the epistemology of physics and metaphysics. <laughs> I was just kidding. So, the ghost of the machine. Backwards, maybe? We have our ways of persuading. <laughs> so, um, I don't want to make this too technical, but um, you don't mind a little history and philosophy, do you? No. We'll begin with one of the uh, very famous member of the Hare Krishna movement, Aristotle. <laughs> Didn't actually know he was in the Hare Krishna movement. <laughs> Aristotle's about, um, oh, I don't know, 2,400 years ago. Aristotle, uh, his teachings were generally divided into two, which are called the physics and the metaphysics. Physics means just the natural world. You know, the normal world that science studies. Rocks and trees and human bodies and just everything that's material and physical. And energy, of course. And um, metaphysics, in Greek, meta means after or beyond. Mm -hmm. So because, so metaphysics means <coughs> what is beyond the physical world. And it's in that section of his writings that Aristotle also talks about God. And um, so I'm going to give you two uh, logical. Oh, water. Thank you. One of the perks. <laughs> Get my own water bottle. <laughs> I'd like to give you two arguments or philosophical um, <clears throat> explanations of how we can prove, actually, logically, that material science, in the ordinary sense of the word, uh, by definition, logically, can never actually give a complete description of reality. It's actually logically impossible, and I'll explain why that's true. Um, <sighs> you like that bumper sticker, so many pedestrians, so little time? <laughs> so I feel like, you know, so many materialistic philosophers, so little time. So, anyway, we clearly live every normal person lives in a bi-dimensional universe. And those two dimensions are physical and metaphysical. And I'll, I'll explain. For example, we live in a country that's theoretically democratic. And uh, democracy, of course, is based on uh, the belief that we are somehow equal. Because if we weren't equal, why would we want democracy? So, 
Um, Thomas Jefferson gave a philosophical justification for democracy, actually, in the Declaration of Independence. And it's interesting because he was a smart guy, Thomas Jefferson, and uh, he consciously was responding to uh, philosophical skepticism. Skepticism means just you doubt everything. And there was a big, big skeptic, actually around the time of Jefferson, Jefferson certainly knew about him, uh, named David Hume, who was Scottish. Even his mother thought he was going too far. <laughs> <laughs> but Hume sort of doubted everything, like he even famously doubted causality. Like, if, for example, let's say... Uh, I tap this table and it makes a sound. You would say, well, how do you know your tapping causes a sound? You just see that when you tap, there's a sound. And it was a little obnoxious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he was doubting everything. And he was, the one thing he said which was kind of good, and which uh, <clears throat> Jefferson was really responding to, and he actually made a fair point, is that, <clears throat> uh, first of all, I'll explain it as he did, and they'll say it as he did, and then try to explain it. He said, you cannot derive an ought from an is. Okay, now I'll explain what that means. <laughs> For example, if I say, uh, if we say, for example, this child is the daughter of this mother and father. That's just a fact. This child is the daughter of this mother and father. That's an is statement. Just describes something that actually exists in the world. But then if I say, therefore, therefore, this mother and father should take care of the child. Or should or ought to, anything like that. Must. So what Hume said is that logically, you cannot, because something is, you cannot say that something should happen simply because something is. Because if you look at the mother and father, uh, we're not going to stay with Hume, by the way. I mean, we're just presenting. He's ultimately going to lose this game. <laughs> <laughs> but he was saying that if, if you look at all the, all the, let's say, empirical scientific facts. That was at a time when Europe had really come flying out of the Dark Ages and even the Renaissance and was, and in the century before Thomas Jefferson and Hume, they had what's called the Age of Reason, scientific revolution, and, and people were just trying to strip themselves of fanaticism and, and um, superstition and crazy ideas because before all this happened, before the scientific revolution, uh, probably the simplest way to put it is that people, Europeans, and people almost everywhere else in the world, really lived in Middle Earth. You know, like the hobbits. I mean, they really, they really believed there were trolls under bridges, and there were all kinds of, you know. <laughs> in India, they still do like, you know, they do all kinds of things. Like if someone sneezes facing west, and it's Saturday morning, and you've got to do all kinds of. <laughs> counter evil spirit stuff. And so there was this very powerful uh, cultural movement 
to be rational, to be logical, to be reasonable. And you see it even in uh, great authors like Jane Austen. Who's, uh, you're, you all know Jane Austen, don't you? Yeah. Please say you know Jane Austen. Anyway, I really like Jane Austen personally. <laughs> so, uh, in her books, you'll find that her heroines, and also her heroes, are, uh, they're very interesting people, and, and they're loving people, but they're very concerned about being rational. So I'm not going to give the class just on Jane Austen, which would also be a pleasure. <laughs> but, uh, but her heroines are very concerned about being rational, being reasonable, and doing the right thing. So, um, if you study, let's say, the biological fact, the genealogical fact, that this child is the daughter of these parents, if you study it scientifically, there's nothing in the scientific information which proves that, say, the mother and father should take care of their child, should love their child, should protect their child. So therefore, in that age in which everyone wanted to be scientific and to prove something meant to prove it materially or empirically, just because we have the set of material facts, how do we know that we should therefore do something? Because the facts themselves, the, uh, you know, you could study the entire anatomical, biological reality of all three people and you won't find a moral obligation in those scientific facts. Mm -hmm. So where do moral obligations come from? Are they real? Are they objective? Now, if you, if you go with, let's say, hard materialism, which leads to all kinds of insane logical consequences, it leads to absurdity. Um, if all that exists in the world are material things, of course I'm actually getting to the topic, you know, is there a science of God? So, obviously, the word science for most of us as we grew up in this highly philosophical country, just kidding. <laughs> you know, sci scientific generally is associated with material things, like biology is a science, or geology is a science, and so on. So, well, let, let me get at it this way, because you all heard of Charles Darwin, right? Mm -hmm. Chuck? Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> one of my good buddies. <laughs> Chuck Darwin. Anyway, Darwin published his book in 1859. Darwin wasn't really like a bad guy, I think. He, uh, he was just trying to do a science, and published it. In fact, he came back from his journey on the SS Beagle, but he, he didn't publish his findings because he was, he kind of wanted to be a respectable man. You know, he was, he was, he was on the church council in the city he lived on. His wife was religious, didn't want to trouble at home. And so finally, in 1859, he, uh, he published his book on the origin of species, and of course it caused this huge commotion. And, and there are a lot of people who were against religion then because they thought that religion was irrational, we want a scientific society. And so one of the reactions to Darwin was the idea of social Darwinism. In other words, if nature progresses, assuming that human beings are represent some kind of progress over tadpoles or you know, or birds, or uh, I don't know, 
hard barks or pigs or whatever. You know, if there's some sense in which human beings represent evolutionary progress, and if, and if progress, if nature itself, if nature itself progresses by survival of the fittest and natural selection, then, for example, let's say, as in every society, people are thinking in England, okay, we have poor people in England. We have poor people in London. So, if we, some people thought if we just let them starve to death, uh, that's progress, because that's nature. You know, it may seem kind of like, ooh, you know, you can't do that, but actually, let's not be sentimental, let's not be squeamish, let's go with natural progress. And so, maybe it's best they start to death. Well, yeah, was, yeah, actually, in the Christmas Carol, uh, this is before Darwin already, but there was already this guy named Malthus. He wrote, he came up with this Malthusian idea that the population will always exceed the ability of a society to produce food, and therefore it has to be. So Darwin's idea of natural selection, survival of the fittest, was already in the air. And he sort of channeled all these things into one theory. So, yeah, in A Christmas Carol, where in, near the beginning, these gentlemen are collecting charity for the poor at Christmas time, and they ask him to give, how much should we put you down for, uh, you know, well, what can we put you down for? He said, nothing, and they can't believe he's not going to give anything because he's a rich man. And then he, he's, they say, don't you want to help the poor? And then he says, you know, are there not poor houses? They had what were called uh, these poor houses, which were kind of awful. I mean, the food was awful, the conditions were horrible, it was extremely demeaning, and so a lot of people just didn't want to go there because it really meant it was a horrible condition to live in. And so, and so they tell Scrooge, some people don't want to go there and, and uh, they'll die. So he said, well, maybe it's better they die. And he says, um, reduce the surplus population. Of course, those words come back to haunt him because when one of the ghosts comes and visits Scrooge you know, and reminds Scrooge what you said about reducing. So, anyway, so that idea. And Spencer, there, there was a guy named Thomas Huxley who even at the time was known as Darwin's bulldog. He was a very famous scientist, very famous educator, high-class guy who was just like ferociously against religion. And um, so he really pushed it. And then I think it was a guy named Herbert Spencer came up with the actual term social Darwinism. Like if some races are, are more prosperous than other races, then that's natural selection. In fact, uh, one race, even eliminating another race, mm -hmm. is its nature. You know, you may not like to see it, but you can't hold back natural progress. So these were ideas that were floating around. And of course, against this, there were people who were more religious that thought this was all awful because they thought, well, it's not just about physical nature, there's also a God and there's there more. So all these, there was like a culture war going on. And um, then, into the, in, in the sort of the first half of the 20th century, there was one man who really was inspired by Darwin and decided to carry out a social Darwinist project and actually had the chance to do so and did carry out a project of social Darwinism. And that man's name is Adolf Hitler. <laughs> 
he was a fan of Darwin. He thought that this is a Darwinian project. Genocide. So what's interesting about this is, what's interesting about this is, and there's a lot that's awful about it, but what's interesting about it is that if someone is a materialist, if someone claims that all that exists is matter, and all that we can really know is matter, then that person cannot criticize Hitler, unless that person wants to be a philosophical hypocrite. But as a materialist, you have nothing to say to Hitler, because if you say to Hitler, that's evil, he could just say, that's not a scientific term. Because after all, the only things that really exist are those that can be empirically studied, observed, and there's no such thing as an evil. It's not scientific. Now, what's wrong with this, there's a lot wrong with it, and, and we can actually prove that it's false. So let's go back for a second to the Declaration of Independence. And so now you know that Thomas Jefferson, obviously pre-Darwin, but not pre-Hume. There's all this skepticism in the air, and all these people that are thinking we should be scientific, and religion is just human imagination, and all that, and let's just go with nature, whatever it is, and go with what we can actually prove scientifically. So. It's not as strong in Jefferson's time, but actually in France it is. Because in France, they had this totalitarian government up until the early 1700s. Louis, Louis XIV uh, was an absolute tyrant, absolute, he was absolute monarchy. And uh, I'm wearing high heel shoes, that should tell you a <laughs> And then, um, and then you had a totalitarian church. You had a totalitarian church. And uh, so in response to this, people who were free thinkers, people who uh, just didn't want to live under this type of tyranny, uh, they also became very radicalized as the pendulum effect, where one extreme leads to another extreme. And so in France especially, because and you could say intellectuals were reacting to this extremely oppressive, totalitarian, like a double whammy, it was like, you know, church and state were both totalitarian, both oppressive. People were literally starving, and, and they were just like throwing money away like no one, nobody's business, palace of Versailles. And of course, ultimately it led to this uh, horrible bloodbath of the French Revolution. It produced its equal and opposite extremes. And so, Jefferson is writing, and, and of course the people like intellectuals like Jefferson, they're very much aware of what was going on among intellectuals in France. Everyone knew what was going on. And so therefore he's addressing, he's really addressing the world. He's making a case. He's not, it's not just declaring like, might makes right, and we're going to revolt and make our own country, and if you don't like it, you know, come on down to Boston Harbor and we'll shoot you. You know, he's not doing that. Jefferson is an intellectual and he's trying to persuade reasonable people that we're doing the right thing. He's trying to persuade reasonable people. And therefore, he begins, you know, he begins by saying when in the course of human events, you know, people are ruled by a really obnoxious person, basically saying, you know, like King of England. 
And so, so then he gives his argument. He actually makes a formal philosophical argument. And the first thing he says, and, and it's very relevant to this whole thing of the science of God, that's why I'm bringing it up. So his argument is, first of all, he begins with epistemology. Episteme in Greek means knowledge. So epistemology is how do you know you know. In other words, under what conditions are you justified as a reasonable person to say that you know something and it's not merely your opinion? What has to be true? What conditions have to be met for you to say reasonably that you know something? It's not merely your opinion. And so, uh, going back again to Aristotle, Aristotle made a very interesting point that Jefferson was keenly aware of. And that, because back then, people actually read books. I mean, they were obviously not as advanced as us because they didn't tweet. <laughs> but they did read books. That was just the best they could do. <laughs> so Aristotle, Aristotle was also concerned with the, very concerned with epistemology. Because he wanted to establish his teachings on a very solid basis. So he said that if you just say something is true, someone can say to you, prove it. I'll give a simple example I always give. Sorry for those of you who heard this 10 million times. I always promise I'll think of a different example and I never do. Let's say someone claims even that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. And someone says, prove it. So you put a pot on the stove, put a thermometer in the pot, pot of water, and turn the fire on at 100 degrees Celsius, the water boils. So you say, I proved it. And the person says, huh, you must think I'm a fool. That's not real water. You must have slipped some chemical into the water to alter its boiling temperature. So prove that's real water. Or prove that's real mercury in the thermometer. So let's say you actually bring in some water testing chemicals. And then the person says, those aren't real water testing chemicals. <laughs> and so the idea here, as Aristotle points out, is that whenever you claim that something is true, someone else can say, prove it. And no matter what kind of proof you bring, they can say, prove that. And you are pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. Progress means going forward. Regress <coughs> means going backwards. Ingress obviously means going. Ingress means going in. See how far we can go with this grass thing. Anyway, so, <laughs> so you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. So how do you escape that? Aristotle said, and Jefferson ran with it, the way you escape an infinite regress of proofs is that you claim, earnestly, that there is a fact which proves itself. It's self-evident. It's self-evident. For example, let's say we see the sun in the sky. And it's self-evident. You can't say, well, could you bring a lamp over here? You can't illumine the sun you know, with, with a candle or something else. You know, a little light on your phone. Because the sun is self-evident. 
the sun reveals itself to us. And therefore, because we all see the sun, we all agree on it. Uh, if someone says, I can't see the sun, and I don't believe it's there, we know that, unfortunately, this person is uh, visually impaired. If someone says, uh, I don't see the sun, I don't believe it's there, that's not going to cause a lot of people to doubt the sun. It's going to convince everyone this person is either crazy, joking, or visually impaired. And so that's an example of a self-evident truth. Something which proves itself. If, for example, the sun, someone, if someone says to me, prove the sun is there, I say, well, it proves itself. Look at it. If you can't see it, it's literally your problem. <laughs> and so that's what a self-evident truth is, and therefore you can't be pushed into a regress of proofs. So let's go back to Tom, Thomas Jefferson. He begins by saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Very interesting. He's, he's literally, by saying that, establishing a system of knowledge, which is going to be knowledge leading to a new form of government. And he says it's self-evident. Why is it so? And, but he doesn't do, so he said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. This is a technical philosophical claim. We hold these truths to be self-evident that we're all created evil. Jefferson claims it's a self-evident truth. Now, created equal, mm -hmm. not evolved equal, mm -hmm. not born equal, but created equal, endowed by the creator with unalienable rights. To alienate a right means basically to take it away. Like if someone alienates your property, it means they put a lien on it or they do something to it so you don't own it the way you used to. So <clears throat> Jefferson says that it is self-evident. It is self-evident. And I, I'm going to talk in a minute about what the implications about that are for materialism. Jefferson says it is self-evident, which is the highest form of proof, that in the world there are non-material facts. That's what he's actually saying. In the world there are self-evident, completely non-material facts. Like one non-material fact is a creator. Another non-material fact is equality. What's interesting here is that all material science, all of it, proves that we're not equal. We are not equal in our mathematical ability, artistic ability. We're not all equally athletic. We don't get the same test scores. We don't all have the same emotional IQ. Some people are just better with people than other people. And so every conceivable empirical test, every conceivable, every test already done and every conceivable test will show that we're not equal. And there's no imaginable scientific test that will show we're equal. And yet Jefferson says there is a metaphysical fact. The physical fact is we're not equal. The metaphysical fact is that we are equal. And so in establishing a system of government, of justice, 
of social values, we are going to subjugate all of science to a metaphysical fact. Because our equality, which is spiritual, it's metaphysical, is more true or is true in a more important way than all the empirical science on earth. And Jefferson claims that as an objective fact, it is self-evident. Now, someone could argue that, well, in science, in material science, uh, we don't have to make like assumptions that something is self-evident because we just prove everything. Uh, not true. If someone, I mean, the only way someone could say that is if they've never, in their life, uh, had the misfortune to study philosophy. <laughs> because no one who knows anything about philosophy could say anything that's stupid. For example, uh, Descartes in the 1600s, you know, honk if you like René Descartes. <laughs> Actually, a very interesting guy, René Descartes. Anyway, Descartes did his med meditations and... Um, He decided, he had this very interesting intellectual project. He said, what if I doubt everything I think I know? I mean, everything. I doubt my own existence. I doubt God. I doubt... And, and this is the relevant point here, it's called his meditation, and I doubt that there's a real world outside my mind. Because, for example, it's not, it does not violate the rules of logic to imagine that you are a brain in a vat, or that you are, well, he didn't say the brain in the vat, the modern philosophical version of it. Mm -hmm. Or, let's say there's some evil genius that has you in a laboratory somewhere and is just stimulating your brain and making you think that you're in this room right now. Black Mirror Matrix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Matrix. Actually, that's where they got that from. They got that from that brain in a vat thing. So. Um, where do you go with that? Someone could say, um, well, that's silly. I can prove that there's a real world because here's a table. You can see it. You can touch it. Uh, sorry, Charlie. That <laughs> is, to, to claim that, that here you can see this table, is what is called in philosophy circular reasoning, which is a logical fallacy. The normal... Hope you don't mind me explaining all this stuff. I need explanations. <laughs> okay, little brain food. It's like that great song by the Jefferson Airplane, Feed Your Head. You know what is it? White Rabbit. Anyone know the Jefferson White Airplane? Rabbit. At the end of it, it, it goes, Feed Your Head. Anyway, so. <laughs> that was psychedelic rock. <laughs> so, um. The normal form of an argument is that it proceeds, you have premises, premises, and then a conclusion. Like the one that's always given in introductory philosophy classes is that all, let's say all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. So you have a premise that all men are mortal. And then you say, well, Socrates is a man, therefore he's within the category of mortal men. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. <clears throat> so the nature of this argument is that if it's true that all men are mortal, 
And if it's true that Socrates is a man, then it must be true that Socrates is mortal. So that is something which depends not on, let's say, empirical study. It's a logical truth. I want to make that distinction. There are logical truths and there are empirical truths. For example, if I say, hey everybody, you know, the most interesting thing happened, we were driving here to the program and I saw a herd of uh, yellow unicorns in downtown Orlando. And, okay. Uh, and someone starts saying, did he take his medicine? <laughs> but, but listen, I actually make that claim that I saw these yellow unicorns. Now, and they're still there because I put a little GPS device on them and so I know they're actually still there downtown. So the thing is that you can, you can go downtown and see if there are yellow unicorns there or not. So some things are true or not true based on an investigation. Like, you, know, you just go out and investigate, you go look for it, that's called empiricism. So, but some things are true or false. Logically, you don't have to do anything like an empirical investigation. Like, for example, what if I say, as I walked into this room, into this building, I saw, right in the parking lot, a square circle. <laughs> so, you don't have to rush out and look, see if it's still there, because if you know what the English word square means, and if you know what the word circle means, you know that it's logically impossible. It's logically impossible that there be a square circle. It cannot exist any more than a a four-sided triangle. If I say, oh, I bought this really cute crystal four-sided triangle. No, I didn't. <laughs> because the word triangle means a three-sided figure with three interior angles. Three-sided plane figure with three interior angles. That's what a triangle is. And so just by what the words mean, there cannot be a four-sided triangle. So some things are just true and they cannot be untrue just by what the words mean. And so similarly, uh, there's the flaw of circular reasoning. So, so that's a normal argument. Now, circular reasoning means, if you, if you think, remember what I just told you, you know, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, Socrates is mortal. So you have premises that go to a conclusion. But what if I say, for example, uh, piracy is illegal because it's bad, and, and then I say the proof is that piracy is bad because it's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or to give an example, if I say there's a real material world outside my senses because this is a real table. The problem is, this is a real table only if there's a real world. And so I'm trying to prove there's a real material world outside my mind, so I've given as evidence of it the conclusion itself. Because this is a real table only if there's a real world. If this is not a real world, this isn't a real table. 
And so it's a circular reason, it's circular because the premise and the conclusion are saying the same thing, they're going around in a circle. And so that's called circular reasoning. So, sorry this is a little technical, this is like not your typical Friday night television, but... <laughs> but the idea here is that you cannot empirically prove that there's a real empirical world. Because it immediately runs into a horrible case of circular reasoning. So then the question is, if we can't prove that we, which we can't, we can't empirically prove that there's a real world outside our mind, why do we believe it? Why do scientists believe it? There's a simple answer. Because when you wake up in the morning and open your eyes and see the world, uh, the experience you have, the quality of that experience, the nature of that experience is such that it proves itself to you. It's self-evident. For example, um, you go to sleep and dream. And then you wake up. And within a few moments, you conclude that the world you experienced in your dream is less real than the world you're now seeing. That this is your... You conclude, now I'm awake, I was dreaming. Now, the problem is, you can't prove that. For example, someone could say that, well... <laughs> what is that beautiful voice? <laughs> Revealing the, you know, my narcissistic tendency. So... So, someone could say, and actually some cultures have said, if you study, there's, I know, the, the original the indigenous people of, for example, northern Australia, had kind of like this dream religion. And you find different cultures around the world that have given special importance to dreams as a particular state of consciousness. So, if someone says that when you were dreaming just now, you were seeing the real world, and when you woke up, you actually, now you're dreaming. I don't want to drive anyone crazy here, but, but the point I want to make is that you can't prove, you can't prove that your waking state now is somehow ontologically. Ontology in, in philosophy just means the nature of being as being, just like what is existence itself. And so, you can't prove empirically, you can't prove scientifically that uh, your waking state is more real than your dream state. Among other things, by the way, you cannot prove empirically are yesterday. Because it doesn't exist anymore. So, the reason I'm bringing these points up are because empiricism is limited. It is actually limited. And so, why do we agree that there really is a world. I'm really seeing you, you're really seeing me, this really is the Orlando area. Because our experience, when we wake up, our experience of the world out there is such that we cannot reasonably doubt it. It proves itself to us. The reason I mention that is because the basis of all empirical science which is the assumption, which you cannot empirically prove, the assumption that there's a real physical world is exactly the same philosophical structure 
as Jefferson's assumption that there's a creator and that in the eyes of the creator we're equal. And therefore, it is self-evident. Because you could say the fact that there's a real world out there is self-evident. But then again, the fact that we are somehow equal, Jefferson was a very smart guy, Jefferson said that's also self-evident. So you have these parallel epistemologies, you know, theories of knowledge. And what's interesting, so both, so both in affirming, let's say, equality, or that, let's say, racism is bad, sexism is bad, uh, killing innocent people is bad, uh, in affirming those things, you affirm them because you know they're true. Just as you know there's a real world. So it's, it's a parallel structure. So when we say that there are metaphysical facts, because equality, justice, um, all that is absolutely metaphysical. None of that is even slightly empirical. So, if we accept there's a real world outside our mind because we have a self-evident experience, why would we not accept that we are somehow, in some important sense, equal? Or that in some, there's a creator? Or that it's wrong to torture and kill children? You know, we know that. We actually know those things are true as much as we know there's a real world out there. In fact, if you study the history of Western philosophy, the reality of the world has been doubted far more than the reality of certain moral principles. Even a philosopher like Kant, you've all heard of Immanuel Kant? Haven't heard of him? You'd be dismayed to know you haven't heard of him. Anyway. I mean, even philosophers that doubted so many things, you cannot doubt these moral principles. We know in the deepest core of our being, with absolute certainty, that some things are actually wrong. And some things are right. For example, it's right that parents take care of their children. It's wrong that parents kill their children. And so, we know these things. Now, the materialistic point of view would be that, actually... Uh, there is no right and wrong because those aren't physical things. And uh, blind evolution. That's really one of the most brilliant theories ever that like this infinitely sophisticated, ridiculously brilliant supercomputer just came about because the wind was blowing, the rain fell, occasional you know, lightning strikes, little seismic activity thrown in, and you get supercomputers infinitely more sophisticated than anything we've produced. You know, that's all you need, a little rain, a little wind, a few lightning strikes, and you get, you know, ridiculously sophisticated supercomputers. Okay, sounds reasonable. So, so therefore, the materials would have to say that blind evolution Blind evolution that created supercomputers. <clears throat> Blind evolution has neurologically wired us to believe a fairy tale. The fairy tale is that we should not rape, kill, or torture innocent people. That's a fairy tale. Because, because any English sentence 
which is not conditional. Sorry, that'd be really technical here because I don't want to waste all the money my parents spent on my education. <laughs> anyway, a conditional sentence in English means like um, that uh, if if you want to, you should come. You should come if you want to. So in that sense, it's conditional. You know, it's, you're not saying it's an absolute fact that you should come. Just, you know, if you want to, you should come. But in any case, I won't go, I mean, I'm getting more technical, but I won't. But basically, any English sentence that has auxiliary verbs like should, must, or ought to is a metaphysical claim. Anytime you say that someone should do something, or someone should not do something, or someone must or must not do something, you are making a metaphysical claim. You are appealing to a completely non-empirical moral principle. And morality simply means what people should and shouldn't do. So, if you're a materialist, you are not allowed to say, unless you want to be a flagrant philosophical hypocrite, which seem to be a lot of takers on that one. <laughs> but if you're some kind of, you know, scientist, kind of like philosophically mindless, by the way, to get a PhD in science, you do not have to take a philosophy course. And it really shows. I've seen top scientists, famous scientists, they're just like, they're like the deer in the headlights when it comes to philosophy. They have no idea what philosophy is. And they don't understand that half of what they're saying is not science, it's philosophy of science. They don't even know the difference. They're, so there's a lot of philosophical materialism masquerading as science. There's real science, there's a lot of real science, which I appreciate, and there's a lot of bogey, there's a lot of philosophical materialism masquerading as science. Like, for example, saying that, uh, that all the different species evolved without any intelligent guidance. That's not science, by the way. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a philosophy, a metaphysical philosophy called materialism. They're cheating. They're actually cheating. Because if a scientist says that, okay, we have all these bones, and when we look at the bones and we carbon date them or whatever, it turns out that, and it turns out that older bones seem to belong to less uh, biologically or anatomically or neurologically complex creatures, and newer bones seem to belong to more complex creatures. And of course, there are many exceptions. There's all kinds of shocking anomalies, but still, that's the general trend. So, that's all they can say. That's science. And then, you know, like those old cartoon shows we used to watch? That's all, folks. <laughs> you know, that's the end of science. They can tell us there's a fossil record. This is how we chronologize it. And uh, here's how it might have happened, you know, the evolution. Now, was there intelligent guidance? Was there not? That's not, a, that's not a scientific question. That is not a scientific question. And any opinion a scientist may give on it is not a scientific statement. Because, because how do they know? In other words, let's say, for example, there is some kind of intelligent guidance. There is some intelligence guiding evolution, which is, I mean, it's obviously the fact that someone's not just like trying way too hard to be an atheist. <laughs> By the way, atheism is a philosophical, it leads to philosophical absurdity. 
Because if there's no God, no one knows everything. And if no one knows everything, no one knows that there's a God. So, agnosticism at least, okay, you're being honest. Atheism is just philosophically absurd. But let's say, for example, there is intelligent design. Let's say in two cases. Let's say in one case there is intelligent guidance, and the other, in the other hypothesis there's not. The fact is, in both cases, you would get exactly the same fossil record. <laughs> so the obvious question to one of these smart-aleck materialists, you know, trying to push their philosophy of science is, well, then, how do you know? Like, for example, if I say, if it rained last night, the ground would be wet. The ground's not wet. It didn't rain last night, because it wasn't wet when I went to bed. So, you can go out and look. And there's a clear way, if it rained, the situation would be very different than if it didn't rain. That's how you judge. But what about a case where, if there is intelligent guidance, or if there's not, you get precisely the same fossil record. So how can you scientifically distinguish? And what if the intelligent guidance was coming from a being or intelligence that's not a physical creature? Then how would you detect it? Because the, the, the core definition of empirical science is it's a process that operates that studies the natural world, it studies the natural world, the physical world, through observation and experiment. Now, if there's a supernatural, meaning beyond the physical, intelligence that guides evolution by the ground rules of science itself, by their own self-definition, they cannot detect it. So in various ways, if there is or isn't intelligent design, a scientist could not detect it. And therefore, when someone says that everything evolved without intelligent guidance, they're not making a scientific statement, they're giving a declaration of their faith. There's nothing scientific about the statement because that statement does not derive from any recognizable scientific process. And... Um, so therefore, what's, what's actually going on in the world is you get these materialists, philosophical materialists, that's all they are. They're preachers. And materialism is practically a religious view. And they are preaching this crazy doctrine and, mask, and masking it, pretending it's science. When actually it's not. It's bad philosophy. Um, and... There's one story, actually I told this uh, yesterday somewhere, I was somewhere and I told this story, somewhere on earth, that there's a story in the Bhagavatam, 10th canto, where a, an asura, demonic individual, it's funny, the police, you know, they always, when they're talking about crimes, they always talk about the individual. So there, there, was, a, there was a demonic individual who worshipped Lord Shiva and got this benediction that if he touched anyone's head, their head would split apart and the person would die. And this person was obviously causing a lot of trouble in the world and so finally this person approached Vishnu and uh, Vishnu said to him very nicely, like, first of all, congratulations on your you know, boon you got from Shiva. 
And then he said, well, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but Lord Shiva is not reliable. You know, he, he cheats, he lies. And so you probably didn't get a real boom. <laughs> so I think you better test this. And so the vision said, well, touch your own head and see if it works. So he touched his head, his head, it did work. <laughs> his head split apart and it was bye-bye demon. So <laughs> I remember when I read that story, when I heard that story, and I was just a, a young practitioner. And I remember thinking like, seriously? <laughs> like, how can the story be that stupid? Uh, I mean, how could, but then when I look at these scientists, I think, okay, it is possible we can <laughs> For the simple reason that if there is something like an eternal soul, then despite all the trouble of this world, you get to live forever. If there's not something like an eternal soul, you die forever. As you get these people passionately dedicating their lives to, to establishing their own annihilation. And I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone on their own has the ability to be that stupid. Really. And, and so therefore I conclude that it, it, it's Maya. I mean, it's on the level of the demon that touched his head. It's like, are you, it, it's like supernaturally stupid. Literally. So it's the hand of God. And, I mean, did any of you ever see that movie, Cast Away with Tom Hanks? Mm -hmm. No? Mm -hmm. Anyway, Tom Hanks works for FedEx. By the way, I was paid to say that. <laughs> I'm going to start selling advertising space on my shirt whenever I get these <laughs> Anyway, you know, typical story. It's, actually, it's a remake of an old story. That he, there's a plane crash and he's, he somehow washes, washes up in this tropical island somewhere out in the Pacific. And um, he's all alone. There are fortunately enough coconuts to keep him alive. <laughs> but he's all alone and probably the only survivor of the plane crash. And so he just desperately tries to signal the outside world. He puts letters in bottles. He, you know, writes big messages on the sand so that hopefully a, you know, plane flying overhead will see it. And so the reason I mention this is, is that in, the, in that situation, anyone in that situation, there's absolutely no certainty, perhaps not even a probability, that anyone will actually get your message. And yet, it's your only hope. So you try it. So here we are, we know we're mortal, at least our bodies are. Uh, you know, and dying can ruin your whole day. So, <laughs> so we know we have these mortal bodies, and the only hope, of course you would always say, no, I'm putting my faith in bionics, but not going to happen soon. So let's say if, if you're alive today, and most important scientists, you know, they're not kids, and so they're... You know, it's extremely likely they will die before some huge bionic breakthrough which will never actually come. And so their only hope to survive, to exist, is that there is something like an eternal soul. It's their only hope to survive. And, and 
And we're talking about being extinguished, just like put out like a flame forever. Like forever you will not exist. That's depressing. And yet, if there's a soul, you will exist forever. And so they dedicate their whole life passionately to establishing their own annihilation. There's something objectively sick about that. It's like I'd rather be dead and right. <laughs> Actually, Prabhupada told me a joke, an Indian joke, which kind of conveys that when I was a secretary in 76 for a month. Actually, Prabhupada never asked me to do any secretarial services, like me to hang around and he used to talk to me, but Prabhupada, Prabhupada told me several jokes, actually. Prabhupada was really funny, by the way. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you can see, like, you know, it looks like this thing, figure, but he was, he was really funny, he was really nice, and he was just a really great person to be around, in addition to being a pure devotee. So, he told me this joke, I remember, in Mayapur, that um, there was these two guys having this argument, this violent argument, that something had been cut. I mean, it's a silly, it's a silly joke. And one of them said, it was cut by a knife. The other one said, no, it was cut by scissors. And so somehow they were just like, you know, they were fighting over it, and arguing, and finally they were rolling around. One of them finally took the other one, threw him into the river, and was beating him. He was going to drown him. And so the guy who was literally being killed with his last breath, he reached, the scissors guy was being killed. The scissors guy, so with his last breath, he reached his hand above the water and went like this. <laughs> so, anyway, enough science bashing. But it's, I mean, scientist bashing. I like science. Every time I go to the dentist, I, I worship science. <laughs> so, so therefore, consider two systems of knowledge. One is empirical, where you study the material world. The other is spiritual or metaphysical. They're both, they both have the same structure. In both, you have, and this, by the way, this is in epistemology, this is called foundationalism. And it's, you know, the most prominent form of epistemology. Some people, people that argue against it actually prove it. Like, for example, now there's a, there's a particularly delusional group of people stalking the earth who are called postmodernists. Philosophers and, um, you know, there's postmodernist literary theory and this and that, but I'm speaking specifically about philosophers. And one of their things is there's no great truth. You know, philosophers used to look for a great truth, but there are no great truths. The only problem is that there are no great truths is a great truth. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so therefore they're anti-foundationalist, but it's obvious that the foundation of everything they say is that there are no great truths. Yeah. That there is no foundation is their foundation. And so if you look at all the, and they say a lot of other uh, equally wonderful things, but if you... <clears throat> And it really does lead to moral relativism. They say it doesn't, but it actually does. And that's why most people, most philosophers think they're a little cuckoo. So, um, so even the anti-foundationalists are actually foundationalists because they just have a different foundation. <laughs> so if you look at empirical science, if you look at spiritual science, 
they actually, epistemologically, they have exactly the same structure. You have, you have a self-evident truth. In fact, like I said, there's a whole history of philosophical skepticism. It's all history of, for example, uh, literally for, for many, many, many hundreds of years, philosophers have taught, many philosophers, that we cannot assume a direct one-to-one -one correspondence between our experience of the world and what's really out there. You know, it's that old thing in philosophy, like, okay, you see a blue bird. Is the bird actually blue, or is the blue in your optic system? In other words, what you're seeing, a blue bird, is that really what's there? Because scientifically, if you study the bird, you just get a bunch of chemicals. You get a bomb. I mean, don't please don't kill the bird studying. But but let's say it, it's a scientific fact that the bird, it's a material body made of molecules, atoms, subatomic particles, and and if you if you study the bird, there's nothing but particles and chemicals in there. That's all there is. You can't empirically find the balloonist. And so if you compare the, the physical bird in a purely physical sense. And the experience of the bird in consciousness, they're very different. So how does a bunch of particles and chemicals and atoms and all that stuff, how does it match your picture, the picture in your mind, or, the, or just not in your mind, the picture you see of a blue bird? And uh, people noticed this a very long time ago. And so philosophers have been doubting for, you know, forever that what we see is what's, in every sense, what's really there. And so again, I'm saying, just like spiritual science and material science both have their foundation, if anything, the spiritual foundation is actually much more obviously true. Whereas the material foundation has been subject to all kinds of doubts and skepticism. Now, maybe the last point I'll make before I allow you all to uh, vote for me, you know, call in your votes. <laughs> is um, so what about that what about the bird we see and the fact that if you scientifically study the bird hopefully post-mortem you don't kill the bird but if you scientifically study the bird all you get is a bunch of physical chemicals and, and molecules so, so which is real um, it's a very simple answer and, and that is uh teleological phenomenalism. Okay, now let me resolve that. <laughs> so, okay, I'll explain what that means. In Greek, the word telos, in Greek, T-E-L-O-S, means a purpose. A purpose, an end, or whatever. That's the word. Te so teleology is the idea that things have purposes. Things have purposes. For example, you have purposes. I'm sure you have plans for the week or for, or for your life. And so, there are, I'm getting a little philosophical here, bless you, there is extrinsic purpose, is that right or wrong? Yeah. Hey, I've known her since she was a little girl, actually. I, used to, I used to hold her on my lap. I won't do that now, so... <laughs> 
So an extrinsic purpose means you just give yourself a purpose. Like if you say, okay, after this program, I'm going out for a pizza. Well, you won't do that because we usually overeat at these programs. But um, but let's say let's say you have a you say you have a plan for tomorrow. Like tomorrow, I'm going to do whatever. That's a purpose you gave yourself, and so we could say it's it's a subjective purpose. You just decided to do something. So that's a purpose you gave yourself. It's extrinsic. Uh, it's subjective. However, an intrinsic purpose would be a purpose that even if you don't recognize it, even if you don't accept it, it's still really your purpose. And so it's the idea that there are objective purposes. There are objective purposes in the world. I remember Obi-Wan Kenobi trying to convince Luke Skywalker to become a Jedi Knight? Yeah. And so, of course, that's still relative, it's still a material thing, but the idea is, okay, you don't recognize that purpose, but really that's what you're born for. And so, what if the question, why was I even born, what if there's actually an answer? And so, that's teleology, trying to figure all this stuff out. Now, in Krishna consciousness, because we know Krishna made the world, and he, you know, put us down here for a purpose. There's a telos, there's a purpose to our being in this world, and that is we have to uh, educate ourselves. We have to learn who we really are, and where we should be, and what we should be doing. And those are objective purposes, because they're based on the reality of our existence. And so that's teleology. Now phenomenology is, the phenomenon by the way, mean some, it doesn't just mean someone's like really good, like wow, he's a football phenomenon. I mean a phenomenon, philosophy means uh, something that you can perceive with your senses. And it, it's actually the opposite of what's called noumenon. This like comes from you know, Greco-Roman language. Noumenon means something you can't perceive with your sen senses like let's say eternal soul. And so a phenomenon, or phenomena in the plural, means things you can actually directly experience with your senses. And so phenomenology means that somehow or other, uh, to really understand yourself and to really understand the world, you have to pay attention to your own experiences. To your own experiences. What you're asking. I'll give you an example of it. Let's say you go to a museum and see a beautiful work of art. Uh, actually, in Tampa, they have this museum of, they have, they're having this exhibit of Magritte and Dolly. I really like them. Magritte's really great, very clever Belgian guy. So anyway, let's say you go to a museum and you see a you know, really uh, a masterpiece of art. Now, here's a simple question. Who has the deepest understanding of that work of art? Is it a qualified art historian? Or is it a chemist that manufactures paint? The modern scientific answer would be the chemist. He's one that really understands the painting, which is absurd. <laughs> because the painting is teleological. The painting is teleological. The artist painted that picture with a purpose, namely that 
people like you look at it. And so if you ask a simple question, for example, in this painting, why is the sky yellow in this painting? And a chemist pops up and says, oh, I can tell you why the sky is yellow, because it's made of this kind of paint that has this chemistry. And it's like, please go away. So the real reason the painting, the real reason the sky is yellow is because of the artist's intention. The artist has a purpose. The artist wants to communicate something or to give us a particular experience. And so therefore, uh, it is not, let's say, the chemist who can explain why the sky is yellow. It's actually the art historian. So what's going on here really, and, and, and when you understand this, you will no longer be uh, cheated by these, uh, by pseudoscience. You know, I mean, there is real science, I love real science. I just don't like cheating pseudoscience. And one of the things they do is they try to conflate, like, you know, merge together two interrogative words, which are how and why. For example, if I say to you, uh, why did you come tonight? And you say, I drove. <laughs> you didn't understand the question. Yeah. If I say, how did you get here? I wanted to see what was going to happen. You didn't understand the question. So the words, and, and so to show you how materialists confuse these two questions because you see from the point of view of a materialist there, there cannot be objective purposes because if there was a, because a purpose is metaphysical there's no material object called a purpose that you can weigh and you know what color is it so purposes are metaphysical so since they're materialists they don't believe in objective purposes and therefore they'll say really stupid things like we now know why the sky is blue. And then they'll go on their blah, blah, blah about atmospheric science and the Earth's atmosphere refracting sunlight and all that and, you know, optics and everything. Uh, no, that's not why the sky is blue. That's how the sky is blue. That is how the sky is blue. Why is the sky blue? Artistic choice. <laughs> Artistic choice. Krishna thought it was, yeah, blue sky. And actually, really good taste, you know? <laughs> I'm not complaining about the blue sky. And so, and so therefore, you conflate how and why. And so there, there's all kinds of, just, what's the word? Um, just cheating going on. All kinds all kinds of nonsense out there. It's just, it's, so, if you don't mind, I'll mention one more. I think, I think one that really should get a, a big trophy for nonsense <laughs> is the idea that we shouldn't impose our values on others. Okay, then there shouldn't be laws against murder. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be laws against rape because society's imposing its values. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be speed limits. You shouldn't have to slow down in a school zone because that's someone's imposing their values. Like, maybe they value not killing little children. <laughs> but that's your values, you know, that's just your belief system. So therefore, you shouldn't impose it. The interesting
amazing thing is if you say we should not impose our values on others because that sentence contains the auxiliary verb should, that is an attempt to impose values. Because I value not imposing values. <laughs> so the amount of sheer nonsense out there is breathtaking. It's the amount of just sheer nonsense that's being spoken out there. It's just, it's almost unbelievable. So going back to our point about teleology, if it's a fact that, let's say, someone who really just knows art actually understands the painting, not a chemist, then uh, getting back to the bird, you know, is it the bird you see, the nice blue bird you see, or is it just this skin bag of chemicals, you know, which is the bird? Because the chemicals, they're just chemicals, and they have an atomic structure, and then, and then we go down to the subatomic level, which is called quantum physics, and you just have a bunch of electrical charges. So is it just a bunch of electrical charges, positive and, and negative, and some new neutrons thrown in? Or is it really just a blue bird? According to physicists, it's just a bunch of charges. They say, they, they like to blow our minds. Like, they'll say things like, they'll say things like, for example, this table. You think it's a table, but actually, you know, the distance between the atoms and everything, you've heard that one? Mm -hmm. It's really just, there's mostly space here, because there's these huge distances between, like, like in proportion, it's like football fields of space in proportion. It's mostly just space, and, and, and we just think it's solid, that's an illusion. Not really. Actually, it's not an illusion for the simple reason that the, you know, the atomic and quantum structure is, it actually creates a force field. And that's why if I put my hand on here, you know, my hand doesn't fall or a flower base doesn't fall because there is a solid force field here. And that's all I need to know before I put a flower base there. But getting back to the point of teleological phenomenalism, when you look at the world, say when you look at the bird and you see a beautiful blue bird, that is what the artist wants you to see. That is actually what the artist wants you to see. Now, just like in a painting, the artist being God, in the painting, there's all kinds of chemicals, but it's not about chemicals, it's about the artistic communication. And that's really, everything else, the chemicals are serving the purpose of the painting, which is to present to your vision a picture. And so when you see the blue bird, you're meant to see the blue bird. And all the internal wiring and quantum you know, networks, and all of that is just to create a picture that you are meant to see. And so your actual purpose is to see the blue bird. It's just like when I, can, when I turn my computer on. I mean, am I interested in computer engineering? No, I'm not. And I appreciate it. I'm grateful to people who do that stuff. But when I turn my computer on, all I want is that it actually go on and everything work properly. And if someone says to me, hey, do you want to know that's actually working? I would politely say, no. <laughs> it's like, please don't tell me. I just <laughs> way too much information. <laughs> so it, it's almost like saying that the picture you see on your computer screen and all the things you do, that's not the real point about computers. 
It's like an engineer saying, no, it's the engineering. That's what's really important, not you're actually using your computer. <laughs> which is, of course, nonsense. So in that sense, the world is teleological, and since it has a purpose, it has an objective purpose, and that purpose is phenomenological, in the sense that God created the world, Christian created the world, so that you could see a blue sky. It's like computer graphics in a movie. <laughs> if you're watching a movie, let's say something like uh, Son of Godzilla joins the Hare Krishna movement, <laughs> which is coming out later this year. You don't want to miss it. So, when you see a movie like that, there's like just this unlimited amount of computer graphics behind it. There's just, you know, this huge amount of technical support. But really, the whole purpose of everything is not the technology for its own sake. It's all just so you see something on the screen. Everything is serving that final purpose that you see something on the screen. And so in that sense, it's not that the scientist understands what the world really is. Not at all. The image you see with your normal senses that's what the world really is, because that's the painting, that's the movie that Krishna wants you to see. And that's the end product. The end product is not quantum physics. The end product is the world as you actually see it. And why Krishna made that the end product? Because you are supposed to experience the world, live in the world, learn from the world, and work your way to wisdom and enlightenment. This world is just a big self-improvement universe. <laughs> and Krishna is the supreme personality of personal trainer. <laughs> it's just a big, you know, it's a big self-improvement get-in-shape facility. And uh, so we shouldn't be intimidated by uh, charlatan, I mean, people who they may be a good scientist. I, I like, I mean, science is knowledge. And I'm grateful for and appreciative, appreciative of all real science. I think it's a great thing. And whether it's medical science, transportation, whether it's just, you know, understanding how Krishna made the world. And actually, if you study history, I did a lot of research for the talk I just delivered and didn't get a chance really, but I didn't have time to present most of it. But um, most of the great scientific discoveries in history were made by religious people. The atheistic scientist is more of a modern creation or aberration. And most of the great scientists in history were quite confident that they were proving the existence of God because the more you show how the universe is rational, logical, brilliant, like incredibly engineered, beautiful, the more you show that, the more you've obviously proved that someone did it. Yeah. So most of the great scientists in history were actually religious. And not only that, they got inspiration. For example, I mean, I, I can't go into all this stuff, but there was something back in the ancient world that the first mention we have of it is like in the first century, like one, like, you know, something like 50, 80 or something, whatever it is, by Plutarch. It's called Hermeticism. There was this, anyway, this great sage at least, you know, if he actually exists, it's called Hermes. Uh, 
Tris Magistus. And um, he, uh, he had, there's this book called the, uh, what do they call it? The Corpus Hermeticus. And um, it was wildly popular in the ancient world because it's a sort of a combination of science, devotion to God. The idea is that by understanding this world, by increasing your knowledge, uh, you are actually working your way back to God. By, by understanding the creation, rationally, you're working your way back to the Creator. And they also had a doctrine called uh, Prisca Theologia, which meant the ancient theology, the ancient wisdom about God. And they actually believed that there is a perfect understanding of God, and uh, it's present in every religion, more or less. I mean, it may be, there may be more of it or less of it, but in every religion, uh, there is at least a part of this ultimate understanding which God revealed to human beings. And this was very popular in the ancient world. And if you look at the ancient Greco-Roman world, it was very syncretistic, which means that, it's like what we would say nowadays in our language, yeah, we're all worshiping the same God, just different names. Mm -hmm. And that's actually what people, that was the pagan world. So that they had something called, for example, the Interpretatio Greca, or the Interpretatio Romana, where when the Greeks or Romans, especially the Romans, because they just, you know, were going out collecting other countries. <laughs> and so, if you look at the Roman Empire, it was extremely multicultural. Extremely, I mean, there were dozens and not hundreds of different traditions. And the Romans, they weren't just like brutes. The, the Romans, it's very different. They weren't fighting, they, they weren't like warring against other people to bring them Jupiter. You know, it wasn't like, you know, we have to bring you the true religion, which is Jupiter, therefore we're going, no. These are totally secular words. Jupiter, by the way, is a Sanskrit word. Um, Dew means heaven in Sanskrit, and Peter is father, like paternal. So Dew, Peter means father of the heaven, father of heaven. But anyway, so, so when the Romans or the Greeks met some other culture, like when the Greeks, you know, they were neighbors of the Egyptians, just south. And so when they saw these other cultures with their own gods and their own pantheon, they would say, okay, you're worshipping this guy, that corresponds to Zeus or this corresponds to Jupiter, or the Romans when they conquered Greece. Okay, your Zeus is our Jupiter, and your, you know, whatever. And they would find correspondences. Mm -hmm. And they would, because they assumed that there's one reality, there's one God, and so let's just match everything up so that even though we use different names, we know that we're doing the same thing. That's called syncretism. In fact, uh, Pliny, an ancient uh, Roman who, who, who wrote, was probably the first encyclopedia, um, he even said that, yeah, the different people have different, they just, they just have different names, but it's all the same reality. So, so the, the pagan world was very syncretistic, it was very, it was very open in that way, and um, for example, the, the Roman emperor would make donations every month to different religious centers, including Jerusalem. He would send money every month to Jerusalem so that worship would be conducted for the, to bless the, the emperor. So they were actively patronizing in the sense of, you know, I mean, all these different religions. The Roman attitude was, there are many channels to divine power, and you can never get enough divine power. And so, <laughs> so what happened in, in this world, and, and, so what I, and, and one thing is, they also 
never saw like uh, uh, religion. They didn't really think it was religion. This was reality. The fact there are divine forces, nature. It wasn't like okay, there's a secular world, and then you know on Sunday I go to church or I go to synagogue or, or a Buddhist temple. The idea was that there's just reality, and reality includes the metaphysical. And so, into this world came a this the sort of crudely fanatical Middle Eastern religion of people claiming to be following Jesus. And they brought into this highly multicultural, highly syncretistic world like sound bites, like we're worshipping a living God, you're worshipping a dead God. And uh, we have the true religion, this is the only true religion, you have a false religion. And the people in the Roman Empire were kind of like scratching their heads and like, what? It just seemed to seem barbaric. And so what happened is that uh, there were sometimes persecutions of Christians, which were not at all justifiable, and that was really evil. But they were sporadic. They didn't go all the time, on all the time, and they were very much localized, like here or there. It wasn't like, there, there was no like universal edict to all the Roman Empire that now you will persecute all the Christians. That, that's not what was going on. It was sporadic intended to be localized. Whereas once uh, Constantine accepted Christianity, once they got power, they did, in a systematic, totalitarian way, mm -hmm. persecute every other religion. Mm -hmm. So actually the Christian persecution of pagans went far beyond any kind of persecution the Christians had suffered at the hands of pagans. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, it's just history. And then this is like stand. This is not a, some kind of like weird secret website. This is just standard, <laughs> <laughs> like the real truth about the Roman Empire. Now this is this is what you'd learn in any good university. So then, but but if you look at the chronology, after Constantine sort of uh, you know adopted Christianity, and then they had a huge internal battle among the Christians, theologians. Anyway. Finally, the Trinitarians won, I won't go into all the details. And, but that was, that really didn't get resolved until toward the end of the 300s, the end of the 4th century. And literally, within a few years later, Rome fell. And things were just thrown into chaos. And so, but, um, and then you go into the Dark Ages, which really were dark. By the way, the term Dark Ages, it's not us, you know, looking down on other cultures. The, the term Dark Ages came from the people that invented the Renaissance. This goes back many, many, many centuries in the 1300s, 1400s. They're the ones that look back and said, oh my God, this is the Dark Ages. They just woke up one day and realized they were trapped in this Monty Python movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Holy Grail. So, that's a whole other story, the Renaissance and all that. But, but what I mean to say is that at that time, when religion was not fanatical, when it was pluralistic, when it was syncretistic, mm -hmm. and there was mutual respect, mm -hmm. and also the various religions did not attach themselves to or try to impose a particular sort of proto-scientific vision of the world. For example, um, in around 11 or 1200, uh, Thomas Aquinas, well actually, actually much before that, the church, even the early like pre-Renaissance, they somehow adopted Aristotle, because Aristotle talked about the heavens and, you know, he had this picture, everything goes, he's geocentric, everything goes around the earth. 
and, and all that. So the church adopted Aristotle. You know, Thomas Aquinas kind of made Aristotle safe. This anyway, Summa Theologica, that was the official doctrine of Catholicism, was just really kind of the Christianizing of Aristotle. But the fact is, people got burned at the stake for challenging the church on Aristotle. I mean, even Galileo said that, yeah, yeah, the Bible is correct on metaphysical things, but not necessarily on astronomy. And so people were being burned alive, not even for challenging Jesus or the Bible, but for challenging Aristotle. And the reason was because the church, you know, that was their doctrine, and don't mess with us. Anyway, it's a whole history, but what I want to say is that if you look at the pre-Christian, at pre-Christian Europe, the pre-Christian West, the various religions, they didn't adopt specific cosmologies or things like that, and therefore you wouldn't get in trouble by you know, different debates like geocentric, heliocentric. It was a very different world, and it, it really, in, in some ways, it got really poisoned by this violent fanaticism and... Um, and now, of course, we've come out of it, but it's like a pendulum effect. It's like the dialectic, feast, antithesis. So in times when there's been religious tolerance and sort of more open-minded, broad-minded view, then uh, religion is not in conflict with science. And people understand there's, there's, there's a physical dimension in life, and there's a metaphysical reality, and different people study different dimensions, like... It, 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 otherwise, it would be ridiculous, like saying, okay, at our university, should we study, should we teach geology, or should we teach 19th century French poetry? <laughs> because we can't teach both. That's stupid. And so in the same way, to, to say that should we teach physics or metaphysics, they're completely different areas. Physical science can't talk about metaphysics. It's not their field. They don't know anything about it. Because it's not physical. And people who do metaphysics shouldn't worry too much about monitoring, you know, if scientists prove something. So anyway, so that's basically as far as the science of God. Yeah, there is a science of God. Of course there's a science of God. And, um, and you can advance in it, and you can know God, and you can have a great life. And, uh, and there's nothing by... by it's just like there cannot logically be a square circle. There cannot be an empirical refutation of God. It's actually logically impossible. It's not like we have to check all their arguments and see if they're valid or not. It's logically impossible. It's no more possible than a four-sided triangle. Because the ground rules, the internal boundaries, or just the boundaries of empirical science, they can only talk about the physical world. They cannot talk about the metaphysical world. They have no instruments to detect it. It's non-physical. It's non-empirical. And they, they just have... By definition, it's logically impossible for them to evaluate it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, there you go. <laughs> Any questions? Yes, back there in the peanut gallery. <laughs> I just want you to um, add about when you were talking about Darwin. Yes. Um, you know, you know Richard Dawkins, right? A 
God, is he, is he a clown? Yes. Yeah. There's a good segment where someone asks him, like, okay, we believe in evolution, and you know, ultimately, where does where does it really come from? So if they go, you know, okay, he came from monkeys, he came from, you know, and he goes to yeah. the primordial soup. And this was hilarious. Ultimately, Richard Dawkins says that we came because aliens had seeded DNA on crystals. And they, like, this is all sorts of Okay, okay, okay. I always like sci-fi myself. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't bother me. It's one of my favorite genres. So he believes that aliens... No, 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 but then the question is where the aliens where come Where the aliens come from. Exactly. The, the simple fact about the clown Dawkins is that he breaks the first rule of scholarship. Literally, he breaks the first rule of scholarship, which is you do not speak outside your area of expertise. Mm -hmm. Dawkins has no academic training at all in theology, philosophy of religion, sociology of religion, history of religion. These are all academic fields. You get PhDs in these things. He has absolutely no academic training in these things, and he speaks like an authority which is the first rule in scholarship and academics, you don't speak outside your area of professional training and expertise. So from the point of view of a scholar, the guy's, the guy's just a clown. He's, he's a carnival act. You won't believe in God, but you believe in aliens. Dawkins <laughs> <laughs> is basically sort of a scientific carnival act. I mean, no serious scholar takes him seriously. Anything else? Oh, yeah, back there. Uh, Last question. I think before in your previous class you were talking about emotional immaturity or emotional problems. A lot of these people who can't accept that there are certain self-evident facts, they have emotional problems. Well, why would someone be really disturbed and angry upon learning that you can live forever. It just ruined, you know, I have to spend my whole life fighting against my own survival. And why did why would it bother you? Just one more little thing really quickly. And why it's also logically necessary that there's a God. Aristotle again. This is Aristotle Day, by the way. <laughs> Mention Aristotle, you get an extra plate of persona. <laughs> so, it's called the argument from contingency. And the argument goes, first I'll give you Aristotle's version very quickly. Aristotle said the obvious, that in this world, everything is caused by something else. For example, without your parents, you wouldn't be here. And everything, everything that we can see in the universe is caused by something else. Stars form under certain circumstances, so everything has a cause. And yet if everything has a cause, then the question is, how does anything at all exist? Because another logical possibility, in other words, doesn't violate any logical principles is, we could imagine that nothing ever existed. quite a joyful meditation, but imagine that it's possible, logically, logically it's possible, in a sense it doesn't vibrate, like it's not like a square circle, that nothing ever existed. So if everything depends for its existence on something else, how did anything ever come to exist? 
And so Aristotle, who was a real scientist-type person, and he, therefore he says, everything is moved by or caused by something else. There must be an unmoved mover. That was the language he used. There must be, and, and we find this right in the Brahma Sangita. Sar, the, uh, sarva karana karana, anadir adir. That Krishna has no cause, no origin, but he's the origin of everything. And so basically, you find, you know, Krishna, the Brahma Sangita is saying something, you find the same argument in, the, in Aristotle. That there, because it's just simple knowledge. There must be an unmoved mover. In, in modern philosophy, it's called the argument from contingency. Contingency means it depends on something. Like if you say, okay, are you going to the ball game? Well, it's contingent on me getting a babysitter or something. So in other words, it depends on that. And so in this world, everything we see in the universe is a contingent being. It depends on something else for its existence. It came from something else. It was caused by something else. And so if that's the case, how could anything ever exist? And where did it all come from? So therefore, there must be, as Aristotle said, the way they say it in modern philosophy is, there must be a non-contingent being. There must be something which does not depend for its existence on anything else, and from which everything comes. And that's the Brahma Sangita. Anadi Raja Govinda. He has no origin, he's the origin of everything. So, we'll stop there. <laughs> uh, I hope I didn't give anyone a headache. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.